Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. The saxophone has at times been the class clown of musical instruments. It's also seen as a vessel for the transcendent. Spirituality is part of the DNA of the saxophone. Then this whole alchemical process of developing your sound, you're developing your own spirituality, if you will, just by virtue of the attention that you're giving to this. Attention is love. Ideas producer Sean Foley has this documentary called Horn of Plenty, The Saxophone and the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't show you this note yet. Uh, that- it's hard to believe that this horn hanging heavy around my neck an extra larynx with a great big hairpin turn in it could take me to heaven, or at least to a blissful transcendent state. Maybe not the way I play it. When I was 12, I was in an after-school music program, and I knew what I wanted to play, but I ended up with a clarinet. I made it through a year of that, but only a year. I've got my own horn now, I'm still not really in tune with the saxophone, but what I've learned is this. The only thing better than seeing one or hearing one is breathing into one. Breathing in, and then let's hear the sound. Our new saxophone mentor is John McLean, who plays tenor. He's also a composer, recording engineer, and producer, and a fellow clarinet survivor who found his way into the saxophone section of a band as a kid. It's an incredible feeling to be in a line of saxophones. You got uh, two or four to your left, two or four to your right. Uh, in a full big band, you've got the trombones right behind your head and the trumpets behind them. So you're kind of breathing as one. Honestly, everything that you could ever think would be incredible to sing as a choir is 100% true and five times as loud in a big band. (laughs) 
So that was really turnkey for me because then that led to uh, Ellington. That led to a special conference that happened in 1990 in Ottawa about Ellington. So that was that became my my way in was was the nobility and beauty of that. Eventually on a chart in a big band, you're going to stop reading notes and you're going to have a section that says solo with a bunch of bar slashes and, uh, and you're going to have some chord changes and you're going to need to improvise over that. And that is a lifelong pursuit. Eventually you come to realize that it's like a conversation between you and your uh, instrument or the musical language, whichever form it takes. It's a conversation and it's your whole life long. By the time you're decades have passed, you've, you've actually got a sort of a relationship, and that's the spiritual part for me. The saxophone is shiny and handsome, and most of the time, it's undeniably cool, but there's so much more to it. It's so rich and so deep, so profound. You know, when I hear a, uh, another player of my instrument who's really good, I enjoy that so much because I just love the sound that's being produced. I'm Sue Terry. I'm a composer, a musician, an author. I'm in Ecuador at three degrees south of the equator, and I'll, I'm on a quest to discover whatever I can discover about myself and the universe. Especially on a woodwind instrument, you have to put a lot of time into developing your tone quality. And in order to do that, we use an exercise called long tones, which is basically holding out one note. It uh, brings into play breath control, dynamics, um, development of the particular timbre or, or tone quality that you want to develop on your instrument. And then the other thing is a growl. Have you sung into your instrument before? <laughs> You know, it, we are very familiar with the rainbow, the phenomenon of the rainbow in, in the visual world. Well, the audio world has the same thing except in, an, in the audio spectrum. And we call this the overtone series or the harmonic series. I'm going to walk down to the C. <laughs> I'm not going to move my finger. I'm just going to use my throat. And this is also an order of frequencies that is the same every time. It never changes. It's given to us by nature. This spectrum is contained inside every note. 
And so the thing that makes the saxophone very much more different than other instruments is that it's able to express a wider range of that overtone series. And I tell people, play against the wall so you can hear the sound coming back at you. When you're playing, you are perceiving different elements of the overtone series. It's like a meditation because you have to immerse yourself in that sound. And once you do that, not only can you direct the the tone quality of your instrument in the direction that you want it to go, but you can actually change the instrument itself. The innovative saxophonist Colin Stetson does a lot with the overtone series, and more besides. omnipresent that it's hard to imagine our world without it. But of course there was a world without that sound. And then in the early 1840s it emerged from the Paris workshop of its Belgian inventor Adolf Sax. Sax was the son of an instrument maker. So he grew up in his father's workshop and his father made all sorts of band and orchestral instruments, but particularly military band instruments. One of these was an instrument called the Ophiclide. I'm Bradley Straushen Scherer, and I am curator of musical instruments at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. The Ophiclide is one of the forebears of the tuba, and it has keys. It has keys that look a lot like saxophone keys, and you buzzed your lips into it, so it's a brass instrument with keys. Sachs himself was a clarinet player, and one of the instruments that he was keen to improve upon was the bass clarinet. In fact, our bass clarinet, as we know it in the orchestra and the band today, its design and its shape is largely a result of Adolf Sachs's work. So Sachs, in thinking, how do I produce really loud, robust, low woodwind instrument? He put the mouthpiece of a bass clarinet 
on to an ophicleide. And it's from these origins that the saxophone is born. And the link with spirituality is that the ophicleide was a replacement for a much older instrument called the serpent. And the serpent was developed in the late 1500s, and it appears in France, where it's used to accompany plain chant singing in the Catholic Church. For hundreds of years, this serpent is identified with the church, with plain chant singing, with religious worship and spiritual practice. And it has such strong links that composers like Berlioz, when they wanted to evoke the church, or they wanted to to give their listener this sense of spirituality, they would score for either the serpent or the ophicleide. And you see this in Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. There's this wonderful Dies Irae, or Wrath of God theme, and it's the serpents and the ophicleide that play this theme. When sax creates the saxophone, which is the love child, if you will, of a bass clarinet and an ophicleide, it's got these spiritual links already in its backstory. When Rossini died in 1868, a quartet of saxophone players performed at Rossini's funeral. It was one of his very favorite instruments. That's the music they played the funeral march from Beethoven's Third Symphony. But have you heard it performed by four saxophones at a funeral? Neither have I. Even though during Sax's life and still to this day, the instrument has struggled to gain uh, full-fledged acceptance into the world of classical music, there you had Rossini as an early champion. (laughs) 
But if you fast forward a few decades later to 1903, Pope Pius X issued a papal edict that wind instruments, which included the saxophone, should not be used in Catholic worship. And even though the edict addressed all wind instruments, it was quite noteworthy that the saxophone was also included in this. And just about this time, we're starting to see the beginnings of jazz. Jazz is starting to emerge from ragtime, from some of the Creole traditions. And when you look at the word roots of jazz, some jazz historians will tell you that our term jazz comes from the word jassing, which is it's, it's a very sexual term. Part of the saxophone's reputation as being mad, bad, and dangerous to know stems from its inseparable links with jazz. And this, again, it's another conflict because where does lots of the material from jazz come from? Lots of the rhythms, lots of the harmonic structure, it grows out of the African-American spiritual. So you've got this intertwined relationship with the spiritual there and that tension all Already. A key to a lot of this conversation is, is the character of, of jazz and jazz saxophone and pursuit. Pursuit as a concept because spirituality is so much uh, a synonym for that. John Coltrane is the first person that will come to anybody's mind. Um, but to learn jazz, for, for a lot of people, the gateway is, is lifting people's solos. Some of my best friends that are jazz educators, they just talk about stacks of paper that are m multiple feet high. That represents years and years and years of handwriting out solos as a daily exercise. The, the pursuit of, of saxophone, let's say jazz saxophone, because there's other choices, but even just jazz saxophone, is very monk-like. I mean, these people uh, that became the Coltrane's and the, the Parkers and the Breckers and the Lovanos, all the amazing, amazing players, they have shown, just like a, in religious practice, you show dietary restriction, you show daily prayer, you show ritual, you show routine. They have done that in a way that surpasses so many people that are even doing it for straight-up religious reasons. These, the, the amount of time that has been spent in the woodshed, as they say, 
it's incredible. And so even to see them out in society, I just feel like uh, it's amazing that, that, that what this person has done is effectively prayed for better music for so long. We have this stereotype of the medieval alchemist of someone trying to turn these base metals like lead into gold. Okay, that's the stereotype. But in reality, the high-level alchemists were interested not so much in a transformation of metals. They were in interested in a spiritual transformation of themselves. They were just using this methodology to achieve that. And to me, that's what uh, many musicians are going for. They're using their instrument in this alchemical way to achieve a spiritual transformation. Norwegian saxophone master Jan Garbarek's 1994 album with the Hilliard Ensemble is called Officium. Garbarek saw that early music notation in the West had large gaps that the chanting monks would have to fill in. They had to improvise. And that's what Garbarek does with his sax, reaching towards the divine. You're going to transform. <laughs> you have to, because your music is like a, a microcosm of life. Can you remember in your own experience when you you were getting to hear the sound that you you know what I mean when you were hearing your sound? Do you recall when that was beginning to happen for you? I remember the exact moment that it happened. I was in college. I went to the Hart School. Uh, which was then known as the Hart School of Music in Hartford, Connecticut. And my my main teacher was Jackie McLean, who's a, who was a legendary jazz saxophonist. But I had another teacher as well at Hart, and his name was Paul Jeffrey. And each of them taught in a very different way. And I remember 
that I was playing one day. I was warming up, and Paul came into the room, and I knew that my sound had changed. And he listened for a minute, and he said, you turned the corner. So that's kind of, you know, jazz lingo. You know, you made a big change. You turned the corner. What did that feel like? Very satisfying. Very fulfilling. I was so happy because I knew it. And then to hear my teacher confirm that, it was a beautiful feeling. Do you remember what you were playing when you turned the corner? Uh, I think I was playing polka dots and moonbeams. <laughs> would you Would you be able to to play a little bit of that? Sure. So that's uh, a little bit of polka dots and moonbeams. Oh, my gosh. That was beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> You're listening to Horn of Plenty, the saxophone and the spirit, produced by Sean Foley, featuring Sue Terry and John McLean, as well as Bradley Strachan, sharer of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This is Ideas on CBC Radio 1 across Canada, on Sirius XM across North America, on RN in Australia and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. The saxophone emerged in the 1840s from the Paris workshop of Adolf Sax. It was meant for a marching band, and Sax hoped it would be adopted by the orchestra. As it turns out, it has gone right around the world and straight to the heart of the human experience. We continue now with Sean Foley's documentary, Horn of Plenty, The Saxophone and the Spirit. instruments aspire to the state of the human voice, to the perfection of the human voice, to its flexibility and to its expressivity. And the saxophone from the moment of its inception was always noted for its very vocal 
tonal properties. And I'm certain that this is part of what has made it a magnetic instrument in terms of this idea of spirituality. Finding a musical voice, this is inextricably bound up with finding your own voice. It's coming to grips with who you are and what you're about. And these are big questions. And I feel that understanding that on a personal level is very much bound up with understanding it on a musical level. You know, as, as a child, when I first started learning the saxophone, just by myself in my room, me and the sax, it was a deeply sacred space. And it still is. You know, that's, that's the feeling. That's the voice of saxophonist Ben Cohen in Hong Kong. He and I met via Skype. I've been playing saxophone since nine years old, and I'm currently a professor at HKBU in Hong Kong. I've been a professor at Florida State University. My academic career over the last 20 years has been involved in an area called medical ethnomusicology that uh, really focuses on music, health, and healing, well-being, transformation, um, and the saxophone has been central to that. My, my father was a physician, my mother was a director of nursing at this nursing home that had you know, over 200 beds, it was a skilled facility, so people going through all kinds of healing and illness uh, processes. And my brother and I did the, uh, the mowing and taking care of the flowers and landscaping as kids, especially during the summer. But in the nursing home, after we would do this, you know, lawn care, I would go in and hang out with the residents and I would play music for them and with them and sit with them and listen to their stories and be in a silent space that later I understood was a meditative space. And the saxophone was my intro into that world. And it was a very, uh, in a way, unfantastic, matter-of-fact kind of experience making music for these older adults, the residents that became my friends, you know, I realized that we all would experience these changes in our whole being. So in our bodies, mind, spirit, emotions, relationships. Now I can put some language around it, but that dynamic was something I experienced from my earliest memories of the saxophone. Finding your voice, breaking through, awakening body and soul. These are all lines, arcs that we can draw through the spiritual experience. But to acknowledge our spiritual nature honestly means acknowledging our shadow side. Well, 
Lester Young, for me, is, is like so beautiful and tragic. You just don't separate the tragedy of his life, like the hardship. So much beauty, but just ground down in the urban history of it. It makes the flower more beautiful because it, it was so against all odds. Lester Young was a foundational tenor saxophone player. His lyrical style and warm tone were the top coat on a musical intelligence that was kinetic and inventive. Again, Studio 58 and the sound of jazz. Billy Holiday. In 1957, he was reunited with one of his best friends, Billy Holiday. They were part of an all-star group on a live TV special called The Sound of Jazz. Lester and Billy hadn't seen each other in a while, and neither of them was in good health. Lester Young and Ben... <clears throat> Lester Young had to sit down during the session. This was a most understated TV reunion by today's standards, but it left those who witnessed it in tears. It would be their last meeting. My man don't love me. He treats me oh so mean. stands and plays. You can't see him looking at her, but she's just smiling and nodding, and she's, yeah. she's hearing what he is saying. So like when Lester is playing, you know, there's there's something very personal and deeply individual that is happening for him, right? Uh, and then there's also this connection with Billie Holiday, with the musicians, and understanding each other. What does that connection mean within his body and being, his heart and soul and hers? And then the other level of what is the import of that, you know, socially? And what is the greater impact historically? That's another thing about virtuosity. And we think more of virtuosity in this sense of technically demanding skills and having, when really it's about virtue, right? And it's about love and compassion and power and bravery and honesty yeah, and justice, like all of the virtues being connected. And so the story brought you into understanding the virtue of that, what he played, right? Through the story, we can understand maybe some of the import and we can see the beauty and virtuosity in that. Mm -hmm. 
privileged to hear many musicians who were at a point late in their life when perhaps some of their technical abilities had diminished, and yet they had an integrity to their sound that cannot be duplicated by a younger person. And that that's what I hear, the profundity that they had achieved in their music throughout their, their lives, you know, that doesn't disappear. felt the artist themselves does not create anything. What we're doing is we're refining our capabilities, our technical capabilities, our perceptions, our spiritual capabilities in order to channel some miraculous thing that can somehow come down to us that we are able to express through our art. Not all artists feel that way, but that is very much how I feel. And I, I don't think I'm alone there. In the same way that Sue Terry talks about the artist as a channel for the miraculous... I wonder whether we could say the same thing about Adolf Sachs. Berlioz wrote lavish praise about the saxophone in his orchestration treatise, but how tantalizing for Sachs, because after all this high praise from Berlioz, Berlioz wrote not a single saxophone part in the orchestra. And this is typical. You had other early supporters of the instrument who were happy to agree in principle that the saxophone was a wonderful thing. But when the acid test of putting pen to paper took place, the saxophone was absent. And I think part of this radiated from the politics of the time and also just from very prosaic practical concerns. There weren't many people making saxophones. There were very few people teaching saxophone, playing saxophone. And if you're a composer, of course, your number one priority is to have your work played. I think it was probably beyond Sax's capacity, certainly not beyond Sax's hopes that his instrument, that the saxophone would become a global phenomenon. But I think at that time, it would have been beyond Sax's capacity to imagine exactly how it would have worked. So I often think this is encouragement for anybody who's out there inventing, for anybody who's out on the edge. You know, the new needs friends. It's difficult being new. <laughs> yes, and I can't deny there's something spiritually powerful, like in an almost consoling way, 
that we truly don't know the full impact of our lives on others or, or on the world. Well, it's, it's the sense of transcendence, isn't it? There's the granular day-to-day, does my life have meaning? But then you step away, and I think we as human beings realize we're part of a larger whole. And along with that, perhaps it's the idea that our work is part of a larger whole, which we might not be able to see in its totality. In South Asia, they value um, flexibility instead of power. So then here's a saxophone, uh, in this case I'm thinking of an alto saxophone, that is um, used in their traditional music, um, but it's not used uh, like a laser to power through a a loud rhythm section. Uh, It's used in the way uh, that the voice is used in that culture, which is extremely flexible, extremely nuanced and, and subtle inflections. It's beautiful because you get those turns and the fluidity and you almost don't even hear the keys moving. It seems to be like running water. That's the saxophone voice of Kadri Gopalnath. He first heard the saxophone as a boy at a performance of the Mysore Palace Band, a marching band and outgrowth of English colonial rule in India. He had been learning the Nadaswaram, a double reed instrument from his father, but he fell in love with the saxophone, and his father made sure he got his hands on one. When Kadri died in 2019, the saxophone was well and truly part of Carnatic Indian classical music, and he's the reason why. When colonialists arrive with their instruments and their religion, the music is there to establish the parting line. And it's this wonderful moment when the instrument sticks, but the parting line doesn't, and the instrument finds itself at home and taken into the very culture which it was meant to supplant. When you start to contemplate what is an American instrument, what instruments would be playing in the soundtrack of America, you would certainly 
give the saxophone a very prominent role there, and it becomes this instrument that's representative of America and American culture. And I think because it's an instrument that gives you great freedom as a player, you can get your hands around a saxophone in a way that you can't get your hands around the violin without years of conservatory training. I think the saxophone itself is a sort of parallel to the American story that if you try hard and work hard, you can achieve something with that instrument. And because of that, I think there's a real link between the American psyche and the saxophone. After it became a naturalized American citizen, the saxophone would prove an important consolation, albeit a secret one, for those living under authoritarian regimes on the very continent where the horn had been invented a century before. Czech-born author Josef Škoretsky witnessed it personally, under both Nazi and communist rule. In the days when everything in life was fresh because we were 16, 17, I used to blow tenor sax, very poorly. Our band was called Red Music, which in fact was a misnomer since the name had no political connotations. There was a band in Prague that called itself Blue Music, and we, living in the Nazi protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia, had no idea that in jazz, blue is not a color, so we called ours red. But if the name itself had no political connotations, our sweet, wild music did. For jazz was a sharp thorn in the sides of the power-hungry men from Hitler to Brezhnev, who successfully ruled in my native land. Throughout his many books, from the novel The Cowards to his novella The Bass Saxophone, Josef Škoretsky describes jazz and the saxophone with sacramental reverence and enduring fondness. In my mind, I can still hear very clearly the sound of the saxes on that old, terribly scratchy Brunswick 78, spinning on a wind-up phonograph with the almost illegible label I've Got a Guy, Chick Webb and his orchestra with vocal chorus. Wildly sweet, soaring, swinging saxophones, the lazy and unknown voice of the unknown vocalist who left us spellbound, even though we had no way of knowing that this was the great, the 17-year-old Ella Fitzgerald. I'm riding high Cause I'm happy and carefree There is nothing can scare me Cause I got a gun Despite Hitler and Goebbels, the sweet poison of the Judeo-Negroid music, as they called it, it not only endured, it prevailed, even for a short time in the very heart of hell, the ghetto at Terezin. The ghetto swingers. There is a photograph of them, an amateur snapshot taken behind the walls of the Nazi-established ghetto during the brief week that they were permitted to perform for the benefit of the Swedish Red Cross officials who were visiting that Potemkin village of Nazism. They're all there, all but one of them, already condemned to die, in white shirts and black ties, the slide of the trombone pointing diagonally up to the sky, pretending or 
may be really experiencing the joy of rhythm, of music, perhaps a fragment of hopeless escapism. What the saxophone does can never be silenced because it's an instrument of the human spirit, of the very breaths we take. It's no coincidence that breath and spirit or soul are etymological cousins. In Hebrew, ruach, in Greek, pneuma, and in Latin, spiritus. And the spirit's nature is to be free, to blow where it will. It longs for liberation and finds it even in the darkest corners. This is a difficult planet to, to live on, and any spiritual teacher that you talk to will tell you that, that Earth is the most difficult. <laughs> but, you know, it's like spirituality. What is spirituality? Um, it, it's the feeling of being in service to a higher power. And then the, the other side of that is to be of service to others. So when we're playing music, the purpose of technique is so that you can express what you need to express at the moment that it comes through. You know, it's not to, like, show off or something. I mean, who cares if you can play fast? You know, what, what are you communicating? And you can't communicate anything unless you have uh, experienced it on this deep level. I would love to hear you play something before we part ways, but I want to leave that up to you, I guess. Sure. Uh, so maybe why why don't why don't we do this, Sean? You give me some idea uh, along the lines of what we were just talking about, and I'll create a little motif based on that idea. Okay. Okay. Hmm. All right. How about um, Voice of Freedom? Oh, wow. That was the uh, voice of freedom at this moment in time. <laughs> that was absolutely wonderful, Sue. Thank you for being willing to to go with it. <laughs> 
that was awesome. Oh, well, thanks for coming up with such an inspirational idea. <laughs> well, it's, I don't think it came from me. Perfect. Yeah. I, think, I think it's coming <laughs> through me for sure. So I guess, I guess hopefully the editing process will be. And here I am, horn still hanging around my neck, still a little anxious to make a noise, to make the wrong noise. But at the end of this auditory pilgrimage, I think I now have a better foothold. I may not be able to do much yet, but I know what I can do, and I've learned the value of that. Just close your eyes and start on a note that is just most comfortable. Great. And then just keep going down, you know. And as you tune into that color and sound and feeling in your body and it coming through your ears, things will come to you that have never come to you before. Insights, healing experiences, and then you can go to another note. Oh, yeah. Hey, a little jazz at the end there. And B flat is the most important note, the, the lowest note. That's the, the, the fundamental frequency, man. And that low B flat, everything else comes out of that. So the ultra high notes one wants to play, they're all going to be coming from B flat. Hey, smile. <laughs> That's fun. It's a thrill. It made my brain go, ew. Yeah. My vision kind of just changed there. Yeah, long tones. Oh, so beautiful. Such a good thing in every way for your playing, for your music, for your heart and soul and body and everything. <laughs> Man, it's so good. Such a joy. You know, everyone should start that way. On Ideas, you've been listening to Horn of Plenty, the saxophone and the spirit, produced by Sean Foley. Featuring saxophonist Sue Terry in Ecuador, Ben Cohen in Hong Kong, and John McLean in Toronto. Bradley Strachan Scherer is curator in the Department of Musical Instruments at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Josef Skwaretsky's essay, performed by Otto Lowy. Special thanks to Keith Hart in Radio Archives. Technical production by Danielle Duval and Austin Pomeroy. Web production by Lisa Ayuso and Dexter Brown. The senior producer of Ideas is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.